0: to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is Hunter Mahaffey. I'm a cardiac surgery resident at the University of Virginia. Today, I am joined by Dr. Vino Thirani, the chairman of the Department of Cardiac Surgery at MedStar Heart and Vascular Institute and professor of surgery at Georgetown University, as well as Dr. Kevin Akala, the director of the Valve Center of Excellence and Structural Heart Program at Advent Health Orlando. Today, we will be debating surgical aortic valve replacement versus transcatheter aortic valve replacement in light of the new PARTNER 3 low-risk trial. So we'll first start with a case. This is a 64-year-old female who presents with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis primarily manifested by insidious onset of shortness of breath and occasional lightheadedness. Her past medical history is significant for type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and mild chronic kidney disease with a baseline creatinine of 1.1. She is overweight with a BMI of 29.7 and has paroxysmal atrial fibrillation on Eliquis. Her echo shows a tri-leaflet valve with a valve area of 0.8 and a mean gradient of 45. She has a mildly reduced EF at 50% and her left heart cath demonstrates a 65% focal lesion of the mid-RCA. Her CT scan shows she's in a has appropriate anatomy for percutaneous access, with mild calcium throughout her aorta. Her SDS PROM score is one point nine percent. So we'll start with you, Dr. Throni. Should this patient undergo TAVR?
1: So thanks, first of all, for inviting us to do this podcast. Um, Kevin and I go a long way back from our days in Atlanta together, so this is, this will be fun to kind of talk about it between the two of us. So I've been asked more about the Taver side, to, to defend Taver for this patient, and quite honestly, this patient falls very similarly into the low-risk trials when they came through. We would randomize this patient, and you ask yourself within the next year whether this patient will just go undergo TAVR or not, um, and... In a trial, I think this will be fine. I think to have a patient this age going to it uh, with this risk score, low risk, I think that's okay. And, But I think as we've discussed more and more, um, patient has to drive this a little bit. The patient should be given both the pros and the cons of TAVR. This patient, if they have transfemoral access, this patient will be done. Um, I personally, and yet these young patients, especially with coronary disease, if you don't want to stent that now, that's 65% uh, lesion. I'd make sure that there's some perfusion scan to show that there's no true ischemia there or FFR. If that is negative, then this patient, uh, I would believe should have a balloon expandable valve because that gives you better coronary access and doesn't cover the entire coronaries as a self-expanding would. If the patient does have a perfusion defect um, or FFR positive, um, then I would do a PCI followed by a TAVR. Uh, Part of the unfortunate part is that the patient has atrial fibrillation. What do you do about that? Um, You could leave this patient on Eliquis, uh, most 96, 98% of patients are transfemoral, so that patient you know would be able to start their Eliquis the day after the procedure. So I think that it becomes important that femoral access, if that's available, then you would do transfemoral. This patient could have a TAVR. You have to design the, um, the coronary access, and you have to design in these low-risk patients, how are you gonna treat that patient. And lastly, the atrial fibrillation, that patient, she has to know that they'll be on Eliquis forever, and they're not gonna get amazed Potentially, could get a watchman down the road, but we're not addressing atrial fibrillation in this patient with just a TAVR, and I think that has to be very well conversed to the patient of the positives and negatives associated with that. Thank you. Lastly, I'll say, Hunter, we were talking a little bit about this. We don't have durability, and right now we have one-year data on transcatheter valve uh, therapies, and the patient has to be told that that we do not have five year or 10 year data uh, for, um, for transcatheter valves, even though um, it's being accrued, we currently don't have that. So these are all the things that you have to tell the patient uh, before they
0: have any either procedure. Yeah, she's certainly on the, the young side so the durability question is, uh, is certainly applicable here. Um, all right, Dr. Akula, any thoughts on uh, if you uh, were to take this patient for a surgical aortic valve?
2: Uh, yeah and thank you again for having both of us here it 's always fun for us to do things together um, you know I, I think vino you know, kind of his last sentence took some of the meat of of my uh, my discussion. I think anyone if in that sixty to seventy year range that is low risk and has diabetes uh, has a little renal insufficiency yeah they they have a higher risk uh, with some coronary disease to having. Uh, a, a shorter lifespan or life expectancy. But I think that is still too young yet. I think if the same patient were 75, 76, to me that's the gray zone, is 70 to 80 in this low risk trial because with other comorbidities, those are the patients that I think will value more from, from a shorter length of stay, a shorter recovery time, return to their activity level sooner, And the quality of life, which I think we're both in agreement with, will uh, improve quicker, particularly with someone with that list of comorbidities, as well as a a large BMI. She's she's a a larger person. So I would have to counter um, uh, Vino with with saying that I think in a 64-year-old with the uncertainties of longevity, and there's no question we have no data with that, and does that... um, entail that she will be anticoagulated, so I think she's protected a little bit with, with leaflet thrombosis or fibrinous deposits on the leaflets. But I, I still feel that this, this mild uh, uh, to moderate paravalvular uh, insufficiency that can occur, PVLs that can occur not only short term, but at a year's time, uh, we don't know what that means. And you take somebody who's already compromised, renal insufficiency, coronary disease, Pretty good ventricle now. You said 50 percent, if I remember, um, and with the uh, with something that's limiting their symptoms, um, I think in those individuals, uh, I think an open. I believe an open operation is still safe, uh, and probably in this instance, probably a better long-term uh, perspective for this particular patient. Realizing that if if she gets. 10, 12, 15 years, or these valves last 10 or 12 or 8 or 10, then she could certainly have a valve and valve. And at that point, I think it's very justifiable. So my kind of gray zone is at 70 to 80 low risk patient. Less than 70. And I hate to use numbers because right. as we both know, there's right. the chronological age doesn't mean a lot. Right. It means more looking at that patient. So, But, but that's, that's, that's the way I would approach this patient.
1: So let me ask you something, Kevin. So this patient goes to surgery <clears throat> and they get a piece of... Sounds like a generous woman. Um, and she gets the 19 or 21 valve, right? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of, as we know, you take, you get in there, uh, the patient's heart is actually small, even though they're big. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, I think the message that has to be sent across the board for Taver Saver surgeons, is that if you take this patient to surgery, are you okay with a 19 or 21 in this patient, uh, Kevin? Okay. Because you're yeah. now talking about yeah. a 69 year old or 60 year 64. old, 64, 64 year old patient who just got a 21 valve, mm-hmm. and you and I both know that that valve valve ain't going to be very pretty. So, can you talk a little yeah. bit about what you would have done for this patient had they come
2: in if we go into surgery? Yeah, you, I don't know if you gave us a BSA. Uh, I did not have. Her. I mean, right. Yeah, you know, yeah. she's short for her weight. she right. say that. She. Right. is. And uh, so let you know, let's say that, that that this the you know, if if the uh, BSA is 1.7 1.8 1.8 to 1.9, would I be feel bad about a 21? Maybe not. Yeah. Right. But you know, if if um, because of the discrepancy with her size relative to maybe her height, um, I would not use a 19. Right. I would get at least a 21 in. Realizing that for a saber valve it, 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 that or a taver valve, that would be a, a 23 most likely. and uh, But you'd have all that debris and calcium taken out. Another thing though that, that I think is important, you know, I'd be interested in your thoughts, is I look at this the calcium load. If you've got one of these big chunky valves that's a centimeter thick, or maybe even a bicuspid valve that, that is now uh, maybe even a, 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 a Bicuspid valve with fused leaflets. This patient did not have bicuspid. No, right, right. right, right. But but you see it on the echoes a tricuspid valve, but two leaflets are fused. and The calcium's a centimeter thick. You know, I think we have to pay attention to the not only the, the the symmetry of the calcium. If you have one side, it's a chunk of calcium or the load, calcium load, because where's that going to go in a 64-year-old that could otherwise be a, a pretty straightforward open operation? Right. Where's it going to go
1: if you use a taver, that e- is? With a taber, right. yes. Thank right. you. Right.
2: Even if you do an annular enlargement, uh, I think that that patient's not only initial risk in those instances, but also... Uh, long-term expectations are much better. Yeah, so, so I, I think you have I to I pay I attention. What's your thoughts? I I, you here?
1: know, I, I'm I have become exceedingly aggressive about root enlargement, um, mm-hmm. and um that's become a bigger thing for me okay let's correct it, that it, it, we, you know yeah, that i'm sorry on. i'm sorry i'm sorry annular enlargement thank you yeah, we, were yeah. said, yeah. we were on a debate Yeah, we were on a debate
2: last year we, we yeah. Did yeah. talked about it
1: i'm not a big root thank you. i'm not a big root enlarger at least guy. he's learned something
2: i'm a big about annular
1: enlargement person and i do the nyx is my common one right between right down the uh, non-coronary uh, cusp into the mitral mm-hmm. anterior leaf of the mitral valve uh for so that to me has become important if i thought that this patient in their 60s are gonna live till their 80s and 90s, I'm very aggressive about doing that. And I think surgeons across the board need to become, especially for the residents, for this is for the TSRA, you need to really spend some energy and time learning how to do a good root enlargement. So I'll tell you the partner three data, which is better than the partner two data, mm. our effective orifice areas in surgery were better than they were in partner two, the intermediate risk. And the reason is because Mike Mack and I really were very um, keen on surgeons doing root enlargements. And so we actually had a better, effect, uh, a better effective oris area and gradient than did tavern fouls. So I think that's very important for us and to, to teach you in the TSRA, to really spend some energy on that, and I know you you're
2: a very big believer in that also. Very much so, and I and I. Yeah, think but you that, use a
1: sutureless valves. So I wanted you to comment on that a little. Yeah, bit.
2: I, I do. And now my uh, and again, uh, one of the things that I, I I feel fortunate we have is kind of a portfolio of valves used on different indications. This patient, I would do a regular Saver patient bypass the right Saver procedure bypass the right. Potentially do an annular enlargement if that was a necessary. Maybe a root augmentation if that was necessary to recreate the normal sinus valsalva, which I think is very important in all of these valves. But um, the in regards to um, uh, the yes, maybe, the, uh, the, the, sutureless. the sutureless valves. Yeah. So the sutureless valves. You know, my concern about those. We do not have enough. We have a lot of data in the sutureless valves. They're the same um, tissue um, properties as, as the, uh, the other pericardial valves that we have with calcium mitigation, except for the, the new inspirus valves. But uh, I think that, that using a sutureless valve in this particular patient, I'm concerned about going back and placing a valve inside that valve. And I, we don't know what's going to happen yet. You'd think it would be the same because the skirt's below where you would place your valve. I, I right now your
1: pacemaker rate is higher, but though. your
2: pacemaker rate is higher. Yeah. It's 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 doubled, and I, my pacemaker rate for her, I would say it's four percent It's right. probably eight percent for a sutureless valve, and anywhere eleven to fifteen percent for a Tabor valve, depending right. again That's on right. calcium level. So when I would use a, a sutureless valve, uh, would be in a patient who's. Uh, low risk or, that I'm operating on, 75, 78, that you get in there and, and the, the entire root's calcified or there the sinotubular junction's calcified. Now I'll use a sutureless valve and go down uh, in, in the, the uh, sinuses uh, with my, this, the annular cuff, deploy the valve, and I'm not as concerned then about the valve and valve later. So I would
1: tell you that you know another thing is that I, I would be, if this patient came to my office, there's a good likelihood that I would take this patient to surgery. I know the position I'm supposed to hold. And the reason I would do that, I get to do atrial fibrillation surgery on this patient who's young, try to get them off the Eloquist or whatever anti-NOAC that they're on, go ahead and do their bypass and put a good, good enough valve in order to set them up for a valve valve. So that's probably what I would offer this patient. And I think that we can't 100% discount patients who have atrial fibrillation, uh, preoperative paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Um, the data's still out on that and I think we're doing a lot of investigation on that but we all know that atrial fibrillation is not great for you. How we deal with that intraoperatively I think is still an area of active investigation.
2: Yeah and you bring up a great point Vino in in these low risk group if we go into the 60s should those patients be on anticoagulation for a while? That's right.
0: You know, Everybody because knows. we don't
2: know. You know, it, we always used to kind of grew up where they should get three months, and it went to they don't need any. To now, we're circling back, and so with Tavor, I think there's a different leaflet opening than we do have with our usual valves stuck in an anatomic Washington position. Are different. Yeah. and so I, I think that would be the question to ask. Yeah, you can if you're going to have a Tavor and you're younger, you know, for valve potential for more or increased valve longevity they may want to be anticoagulated, or they may, it may be best to, uh, uh, to offer them anticoagulation or suggest that.
1: So you know, when, he, when we kind of sum it up for you and the residents, I think the key thing is for you as a resident to have a portfolio, and Kevin said this, and I want to build on what he says, you have to have a portfolio of what you can do. You have to own the disease. To me, that's critically important. You have to, hopefully, if you're a valve surgeon like both Kevin and I are, you have to understand how to do TAVR, so that when you talk to the patient, you have full equipoise. You have to understand how to do surgery. Um, in the surgery, you have to be comfortable with the root enlargement and annual enlargement, plus, minus suture valves, you know how to do a maze and a coronary bypass. So you, as an individual, are the position, the best, to guide the family and the patient on what to do next. So to me, that's the important message that I, I both think, of us wanna, think want to say. I right? couldn't
2: agree more, that, that you have to realize there's it's not one, one fits all. I think you have to have a continuum, not only of educational process, and still go back to that annular enlargement and things that we've done historically, uh, but that still has to be in your in your um, your toolbox to utilize on these patients. So, absolutely, you know, I enjoyed this. This is very good. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly
0: an exciting time in cardiac surgery, and I think that you really phrased it well. That um, future as Future cardiac surgeons, we really have to own a disease process mm-hmm. and, and understand all the different treatment modalities. So I yeah, really yeah. appreciate your your time
2: and and uh, in this discussion. Thank you, Director, so much. Thank you so much. Thank you.